Hey kids, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, and this show is Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. Today is Tuesday, May the 7th, 2019, and this marks our 100th episode. Yes, 100 episodes of Fish Out of Agua. Oh my God, can you believe it? And on that note, we are going to have a fantastic guest artist for you this week. I cannot wait to bring this person to you. And just so you know how we usually set the tone of the episode with the opening song, nothing on this episode is going to be before the year this song came out. It's going to be a real blast from the past here. So enjoy episode 100 of Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo, our penultimate episode. And we're back with Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo on Radio Free Brooklyn. You just heard All the Young Dudes by Matt Hoople from their All the Young Dudes album back in 1972. David Bowie originally wrote this song, and this band recorded it, and it became their biggest hit. I think they're, they're probably considered a one-hit wonder. I think they might have one other song that was a big hit. But, yeah, it's from back in the day. I remember hearing this song when I was a kid, and getting chills at the end when the when the singer is singing, I wanted to do this for years. Isn't it funny how a song that from your childhood can still affect you as when you're in your 
better spent youth. <laughs> well, we're going to continue with this little throwback psychedelic uh, theme with our next song, which our guest artist this week handpicked to open their episode.
We are back on Radio Free Brooklyn with Fish Out of Agua with Michelle Carlo. You just heard Tommy James and the Shondells with Crimson and Clover from the album also titled Crimson and Clover, which came out in the great year of 1968. Oh my God, that is 50 years ago. That's crazy. My God. And there are songs today that are reminiscent of this psychedelic rock sound. I guess when something's good, it's good. (laughs) You know what else is good? our guest artist this week. I cannot wait to bring this person to you so you can see what the connection is between all the young dudes and Crimson and Clover and why psychedelic music and why is everything from this same time period. Well, wait no longer, kids, because now it's time for my favorite part of the show. Whoa, whoa. Welcome to Fish Out of Agua's Guest Artist of the Week! Woohoo! This is episode 100, people, and I am sitting here with someone who is multi-talented in multi-disciplines, whom I've actually known since the 20th century, so we may be going off on some tangential things here, so bear with us, and please welcome to Fish Out of Agua, the one, the only, Reverend Jen Miller! Hello! Woo! How was that for an introduction? Pretty good. I was hoping that you would roll the R in Reverend, though. Reverend Jen Miller! (laughs) No one does it quite like you. Well, you know, that that was from the Karma Mafungo days. Yep. So, wow, I'm so happy that we're we're finally at last getting to do this. It's cool. Yeah. Chill out with you. Yeah. So, one of the things that I ask every artist when we begin our chat together, is how and where did we meet? And I can't pinpoint any day or time. I seriously can't remember exactly when we met. I remember seeing you in the Carmen Mofongo outfit, and then we just immediately were friends. It seems like we've been friends forever. We have. And I don't remember any introduction. Well, we both said our names on stage as part of our act, so maybe we thought that we knew each other. I honestly can say... That you and I have performed together at venues 
too numerous and sometimes too torturous to mention. If we lifted them, it would be a litany of the long-gone Lower East Side. Right. I'd love to make a map and sort of hang it up as a plaque on Ludlow Street or Orchard Street just showing all of the venues or a walking tour of go by all the places that have closed down. And that don't exist anymore. Oh, my God. Right now, I want to talk about where are you from? And by that, I mean, where did you grow up and um, your family's origins? Okay, I'm from Silver Spring, Maryland, and that's a suburb of D.C. There is an actual Silver Spring there, and it is spring singular, not plural. People who aren't from Silver Spring get it right. We're a D.C. suburb. So I lived there until I was 18, and then I came to New York to go to SVA. My father was born in Kokomo, Indiana, but moved to D.C. when he was three. Not on his own, obviously. (laughs) His family brought him. He is a very adventurous three-year-old. My mom was born in Belsill, Scotland, which is a suburb of Glasgow. Wow, so you're almost, you're like half for first gen. Yeah, totally. So she came over in, I want to say, 67 or 68. Yeah, uh, met my dad. And he already had my three brothers from a previous marriage. So she had my older sister, Wendy, with my father, and then they had me. So wow. there were five of us. Yeah, cool. we're, we're all jam-packed together. So it was a real fun house to grow up in. I usually ask people if they grew up in an education or performance-oriented family, but I know that your father was a judge. Yep. What, what kind of a judge was he? He, well, he'd been a defense attorney for years and then was nominated to, uh, what's the one, district court, and then became a circuit court judge, then was nominated to the circuit court. So mostly it was, uh, you know, murder, rape, crack. Oh, wow. Big crimes. Yeah. He had, uh, I think he handed down the longest sentence in Montgomery County history at one point. I'm sure somebody is out did him, but he didn't believe in the death penalty, but this guy shot seven people. So my dad threw the book at him. Whoa and whoa. And your mom, was she involved in any kind of artistic pursuits and stuff when, when you guys were growing up? Well, my mom's an extremely creative person and she's a great storyteller. Um, she's a fashionista and she was a homemaker. She's a stay at home mom for the five of us, but loves telling stories and definitely very much into books and got me to be a big reader and, and also loved magazines. So for years, all I read was like the Inquirer. She'd come home with groceries. I'd grab all the tabloids out of the bag, which is why I started my first magazine when I was like nine or 10. (laughs) Well, the Inquirer (laughs) is a good inspiration. Aliens! Oh, and my mom also got me into vintage clothing because she had a lot of her crazy clothes from the 60s. And I'd wear them to high school when I was a teenager, much to the uh, horror of others. Your dad also liked to draw, right? Yeah, he was a cartoonist and painter on the side. He had a comic book called The Robed Avenger about... uh, mild-mannered individual named like Mervyn Twitney or something who became the robed Avenger when danger called and it was like this judge flying around with a gavel and uh, doing justice and then he's got his trusty retriever Solomon by his side but he also did really cool paintings and he definitely taught me to draw. So you basically came out of the womb a weirdo. And, yeah. we're, and, and basically were encouraged from, from the start, yes? Yeah, yeah, my parents were pretty eccentric. They liked to have parties, and they liked having people over, and you know, they made fun situations out of uh, pretty much everything. <laughs> Are you the only sibling out of the five that has pursued an artistic career, or do the others have artistic hobbies? 
I'm the only one who pursued an artistic career. We all do vastly different things. Like, first my brother Bill was going to go into architecture, but he switched. He's in politics now. And Matt was in the Navy. He was a jet fighter. And Chris is in real estate. And Wendy's a personal trainer. So we all did totally different things. Wildly divergent. Yeah. <laughs> widely divergent things. Wow. But Bill and I actually fit the stereotypical oldest and youngest to a T. You know, the youngest is supposed to be the crazy spoiled one that is an artist or an actress or something. And <laughs> I don't think I was any more spoiled, but I definitely got away with more because they were probably exhausted well, by I was gonna the time say, I was a teenager. Yeah. I mean, if there were five of you, they were probably just like, ah, let her do what yeah, she wants. Yeah, all right. And she's wearing elf ears cool so did you start wearing elf ears in childhood no, no. <laughs> but I always wore very strange things I had a knack for eccentric clothing but started wearing elf ears when I was in art school mm. and in art school you get these ideas and just go oh these look good I think I'll just wear these every day <laughs> <laughs> when you were a child how did your artistic expression come out were you a painter from the get-go did you write did you make puppets did you put on shows did you enlist your siblings I did all of those things I I got lost in a creative world a lot and I remember uh the kids in the neighborhood us putting on plays and things but in terms of drawing I've been drawing since I can remember since I you know not that I remember much, but basically walking and speaking and eating and drawing all probably happen around the same time. I was encouraged a lot. Like, you know, how parents don't want the kids to draw on the walls and things. Well, the downstairs bathroom, they just said, okay, you guys draw on the walls in that room. Wow. <laughs> and so we did. But my dad was always drawing murals in the house. He had one, one wall in Wendy's room where any characters that were new that came out, he'd paint them on the wall. So we had R2-D2 and C-3PO or Cinderella. Wow. Or, you know, whatever characters were in movies that we liked. And so you grew up in, in a house where your father was drawing on the walls. Yeah. That is so cool. Every day was a coup in the Miller household. That's kind of amazing. I've interviewed a number of people and very few people, I could say, have been encouraged, yeah. you know, to express themselves creatively. So to hear you talk about your dad was drawing on the walls, that's... Well, for That's my, a singular thing. The big encouragement came from both of my parents. They, they, they saw what I could do, you know, and my dad knew that I was a real disciplined person and that uh, I wasn't going to joke around, that whatever I decided to do, I would do it as well as I could. And I said to my dad, you know, why didn't you become an artist? And he said, oh, you know, your grandmother, she got me lessons, but I used to skip them and go play pool at Champions. And he said, art, it took too much discipline. And I said, but you became, you went to war, and then you became a lawyer, and then you became a judge. And he said, art is harder. Wow. And he knew that I would understand that choosing to be an artist is not choosing an easy route. It's, no, no, because if it was easy, everybody could do it. Well, you could do lots of things and make a good living, and I kind of knew I was choosing a path of instability, but I also knew that anything less of doing what I felt was a calling would be cheating myself out of uh, out of this wonderful life of luxury that I'm <laughs> leading today. <laughs> so how did you manifest your art going through your 
early years. Well, my elementary school was little, you know, so I had lots of friends that grew up in in the neighborhood. And we made a magazine together called Jen Magazine because there were so many girls named Jen born in 1972. And I just always did lots of drawings. I always had a sketchbook. I was a weird kid, but I also did normal things like I played sports. (laughs) <laughs> oh, that's right. You you and your sister, didn't you, like, get medals or trophies for swimming and stuff? No, we were we were pretty good swimmers, but, I mean, look at me. I'm 5'3". I'm not exactly Michael Phelps, but well, yeah. we swam. We, we joined the swim team. I was six years old. I was, like, a tadpole, and I swam till I was 16, 15 or 16, and competitively, you know, every Saturday morning wow. <laughs> of the summer, you know, the the meets. But it was fun. I loved my swim team friends, and I still swim whenever I get the chance. You knew when you were in high school that you definitely were going to go to an art school and pursue an artist career. Yeah, I was already at 16 going to University of Maryland and sketching nude models. You'd go in and pay like $2. And, of course, the first time I went, I was 15, and I just started giggling. I'd never had a naked person and like stand seriously posing and I was so young and immature but I was also making this big decision to be an artist so the one place I really wanted to go was Virginia Commonwealth University and because I didn't want to go up north I hate the cold <laughs> I hate it. and uh, my SATs weren't good enough to get a scholarship there but I was good enough to get merit scholarships based on on the visual art, just not to an actual real non-art school university. I'm very bad at math. I didn't want to go to New York, but the other schools that gave me scholarships were like Chicago, and oh, that's, even colder, that's even colder, and and then California. Oh, the and art center parents, in California. Yeah, my parents were like, uh, yeah, like I don't know why you even applied to that because that's airfare and blah blah blah. And New York seemed like the most logical, even though it would seem like this big uh, risky chance. But it's close enough to Maryland, four hours, you know, that it I was gonna be far enough away from my family that I would have some independence, but close enough that and also my teacher said to my dad you know painting is her main thing and she should probably go to SVA I think the best thing about SVA is that you're right near all the galleries and they get yes. you going to art galleries from the get-go it's still the center of the art world so you're right there you're exposed yeah. to the contemporary art world right away they have work study there so I was able to get a job right away started working for an art consultant and I didn't even know what an art consultant was when I came here so you can get jobs you know that further what you want to do with your life so you moved here at 18 Mm-hmm. You started, I think, in 1990? Yeah, I got here right in time for everything to be lame. <laughs> but well, the early 90s were kind of lame. They really were, you know. So let me ask you this. Did you have any kind of culture shock coming north? It wasn't culture shock, weather shock, or anything. It was being alone and not knowing a single person in New York. I didn't know a single person. Wow. I didn't have a single friend that came here with me. I mean, my buddies were all at University of Maryland, you know, in having campus life. And SVA has no campus life. SVA didn't have dorms. So That's right. That's I right. I lived in a all-female residence of the Salvation Army building, the Parkside Evangeline. So I didn't have any friends. I was trying to make friends with the other painting students, but I didn't know how to go about it and everybody seemed to have a life you know and here I am just by myself going to my one little room but did you there have was curfew 
No, they weren't that bad, but uh, I don't think you could have ever snuck a dude in there. They were, like, serious wow. about it. Yeah, but we had, um, you know, a cafeteria there because you paid your weekly rent and you got meals with the rent. And I look in the cafeteria like, oh, who am I going to make friends with? And they'd said that it was a residence for young women, but everyone in there appeared to have been living there since 1940. But I see this girl in the cafeteria, long black hair, hip huggers, black turtleneck. She looked like a beatnik, and she was just really beautiful. And she looked cool, frankly. And I walked over to her. I was like, hi, my name's Jenny. I'm from Maryland. Can I sit with you? This got it all out of the way. And I, and I said, what's your name? She said, Julia. And then we became pals. It turns out we both loved Jack Kerouac, beat literature, punk rock music, and 60s music, and 60s fashions. And we stayed up all night talking. And, you know, after a few weeks, wanted to room together. So we moved into one of the more luxurious Salvation Ooh, Army a rooms. Suite. <laughs> yeah. Wait, did Julia go to SVA as well? Mm -hmm. She was a painting major. I mostly hung out outside of my major until I switched majors to sculpture my senior year. And then I spent a lot of time in the sculpture building and hung out with the sculpture majors. So you graduated with with a sculpture degree? Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah, I I wanted to be a sculpture major because in painting you had to... uh, make paintings and I didn't feel like making paintings I wanted to do more conceptual installation work along with performance which all of that could be included in sculpture because it's in the realm of the three-dimensional world and so you know uh senior year Julie and I started our punk rock band pop rocks and I mostly did large installation work a lot of times painting was incorporated into it but the fun of having that big sculpture studio and all the equipment to play with and more studio space and and the liberty to kind of do things that are off of a canvas was great. Now, you mentioned performance. Um, What do you think was the, the tipping point that sparked that in you to perform and add that to your art repertoire? I was interested in performance art, and they didn't have a performance art class and then finally my senior year they introduced a performance art class. oh man if they had only had that when i and, was there yeah all the freaks signed up for it right the, but the best freaks only like 10 people but all the true true weirdos and our teacher we had her for about two weeks and then she just never came back <laughs> to teach and so mike smith who still is one of my favorite performance artists he became our teacher and the first thing he said to us was Performance art is about becoming a giant asshole. Um, I thought, I love this guy. And we had a great time in his class, and, and I started doing performance. It was natural for me, because I've always been teetering on the edge of doing performance as life, you know, or whatever. So, Did you entertain going for your MFA? No. I thought, I'm ready to be an artist. Really, I was extremely disciplined. Waking up early, on weekends going to the sculpture studio, buying my plywood dragon, 14-foot piece of plywood to the studio, carving it up into sculptural installations, and just working really, really hard for four years. And then afterward, going, I'm done. And there was no question of leaving New York. You weren't going to go back to some southern city and do it. You had to stay here. You know, occasionally I threatened to leave New York. I hate it here. But I can't see myself living anywhere else. I honestly can't. Maybe there's a, oh, Jen, we need you in L.A. because we want to turn your book into a movie. But, um, you know, I 
always want to stay here. I'm very much uh, somebody who likes to have a home, a home base. I like having a pet. I like having, <laughs> this is my kitchen, this is my bathroom, you know, and I don't know what it is because I'm a Leo. I yeah, think but, I'd but, be a cancer like but, you. But no, you're on the cusp, I think. So yeah, may, I maybe you're half crab. So getting back, how were you supporting yourself? Were you living out of away from the nuns by the time you graduated? Yeah, yeah. I had my second year, I moved into the Jersey City buildings. We had dorms in Jersey City, basically. Wait, SVA had dorms in New Jersey? Yeah, because oh, we didn't so... have any dorms. The places in Jersey City were awesome. They were those Newport Pavonia buildings mm, that they had like rented out yet so SVA had like a block of those apartments to rent to us and we all loved it out there I mean there seemed to be no reason to go into Manhattan except to go to school because we had these big apartments that have parties everyone lived there you know and it was like a little artist utopia out wow. there. Wow. I know, boy, I'd kill for one of those apartments right well, now. now I think they, it's all populated with finance bros, right? Yep. And, and I've the been apartments there. are probably like $5,000 a month. Because <laughs> they were big, beautiful apartments. And at that time, you probably had the most stunning, heartbreakingly beautiful views of Lower Manhattan and the original World Trade Center. Yeah, me and Dog, my uh, my ex-boyfriend, we used to, like, jump this fence and go sit right on the water on these beautiful, like, you know, spring nights and look at the city and just uh, being, being 19 and staring at the city and just, you know, having your first love. It was like, ugh, oh, everything about it was so perfect. And, yeah... Here I am now. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so by that time, senior year, I was living in Broadway American, which is a hotel on 77th, I want to say, because I wanted to focus real heavily on my art my senior year. And so I lived alone and just worked nonstop. So after you graduated from SVA, how were you pursuing your art? What were you doing at this time? And what was your goal for it? I didn't, I wanted to get into an art gallery, okay. show my work, you know. And it was sculpture at this point, not painting? Oh, it, was, it was a little bit of everything. And I then moved to Williamsburg. So I moved to South 4th Street. I found a room. I lived there like a year. And that's when I started looking because I wanted to have a lease. I wanted to have my own apartment. I found the place on the Lower East Side. Before I'd even moved to the Lower East Side, I'd started going to Faceboy's Open Mic at Collective. The old Collective, the first one on... On Ludlow Street? No, no the, the very, gas station? Yeah, the one on Avenue B right, that so, was next door to the gas station. So yeah, so I'd gone there and then... Um, that's that's then, the one that burned down. Yeah, when it burned down, they moved to Surf Reality, or Faces Open Mic moved to Surf Reality. And, and the Collective, collective they uh, started work on moving it to Ludlow Street... It was this great conjunction, as they say in the Dark Crystal, you know, where everything came together perfectly. Boy, that was the funnest time ever. <laughs> I started my open mic, I think, in 95. Is that when you became an elf? What was what was the tipping point that you decided that you were an elf? Oh, I, that was my sophomore year of college. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, let, let's backtrack and talk about that a little bit. What, what, what was the origin... Of, of Rev Jen the Elf. Oh boy, I mean, seriously, I was taking a lot of acid at the time. And I had been making puppets, making little movies with puppets that kind of look like elves. I've always been really into the Dark Crystal and stuff like that, like fantasy things. Although I'm not like a fangirl for fantasy, I guess you would say. 
But I really like the Dark Crystal, and I kind of like the way the Gelflings dressed and wore their hair. I think this is my thinking that went into it. And also at SVA, a lot of people had a lot of tattoos and, like, dyed hair and, like, facial piercings and stuff. And I thought, wow, they're all being weird in exactly the same way. Isn't that interesting? And my elf ears just uh, were were sort of non-conformity in a way no one else was wearing elf ears. So I, um, but I got them, I'd gone out to Alcone, which was this uh, special effects sculpture supply store. Went out there to get my Roma Plastilina and my plaster and to make puppets. And I saw the elf ears there and I was like, whoa, I need these elf ears and I'm going to wear them to school. And I put them on, I thought these look nice. And then I just, like, wore them every day after that. I still wear them, except I'm having trouble finding the right size ones. Really? I have to order them online, but I don't like ordering things online. And now we know where the elf aspect came <laughs> yeah. in. But where did the Rev aspect of RevGen come from? So Julia and I were in this band, Pop Rocks, and we like to say that we were how. How is a word that we came up with that described things that were marginalized and slightly not so cool in a world where everyone was pretty cool. Like, sort of the opposite of suave. Then we started calling everything that felt socially awkward how. And we decided that we would preach the word of how or uh, uncoolness in all of our songs, which we did a lot of. And then I happened to be at this show, this metal band called Thrust, sitting next to this long-haired dude and... I just started chatting with him, and he told me that he'd just become a reverend through the Universal Life Church. And I said, I want to become a reverend because I practice this religion how? And he said, oh, you just write to them, and it's free. They'll make anyone a reverend. And I thought, well, I have to do that now. So I wrote to them, and then they sent me a certificate that I was legally a reverend. So then when I went to Face Boys Open Mic, he asked me to sign my name up, and I just wrote Reverend Jen. I thought... Uh, there's lots of gens, but I'm now officially a reverend with the certificate. And then it was one of those nicknames that just stuck. What made you decide to start your own open mic? Um, well, the poetry slams were really big at the time, but I thought they were incredibly annoying. Like, Did you ever go to any of them at the New Eurekan? Yeah, yeah. I went and I did very Hal poetry and got like a score of three or something. Like I was just messing with them. I mean, you know, I, many people who were slam poets became my friends and Bob Holman obviously became a friend. And But I thought... Uh, just because I always like to be a thorn in the side of anything popular or cool, I started the anti-slam where everyone gets a 10 no matter what. Thus being like friends of the friendless or something. Like, you don't have to be cool. You don't even have to make quality art. Or you don't even have to do art. You don't have to do poetry. You can get up and do interpretive dance or anything, and you'll still get a 10. I had a lot of weird stuff happen on stage there. How many years... Did you do the anti-slam regularly? I did the anti-slam every Wednesday night from, I think I started in 1995. I think it was October of 1995. Every single week until Old Collective on Ludlow got, like, they sold the building. They didn't bulldoze it till much For 10 years, please. Um, But after they sold it, then I followed Collective to Tribeca. But I think I might have had to take a few weeks off before that started because I don't think they opened it right away. And then 
I did it weekly there, but then I thought I missed the Lower East Side, and I lived on the Lower East Side, and so I left Collective on good terms, you know, because Cake Shop had just opened, and I was always going into Cake Shop for coffee and donuts or whatever, and became friends with them and said, you know, maybe I can do my open mic here. So I did it at Cake Shop on Ludlow in the basement for a couple years. And then they said, you know, we could have like four bands here and you're really not selling that much beer. And so I left there on good terms. I continued to do shows there, but just special event shows. And I uh, started doing it at Mo Pitkins, eventually went to Down East Art Center and a few other places. Ended up at Mo Pitkins where I did it weekly. Then... Eventually, Mo Pickens closed, and I moved it to Bowery Poetry Club, but I only did it monthly at Bowery Poetry Club. And since then, it's been in a million different locations. I don't know where it's going to go next. I kind of have some ideas, but i got to give it some time. Yeah, sometimes you just... It's hard. It's its really... I don't think... Pe- unless you're doing it, I think people don't realize how difficult it is to put out something weekly. Yeah, it's just, it's it's time because it just basically becomes your life. And yeah. you are one of the most prolific artists that I know because not only did you put out, did you put out, did you, yeah, you probably put out a lot. <laughs> I think so, especially in the 90s. <laughs> so not only were you doing the your open mic, the anti-slam every week, but you were also coming up with all these types of performance projects. You had plays. You came up with a character called Doodoo. Yeah. You helped found the DLF, the Dance Liberation Front. You created Electra Elf, yeah. the Adventures of Electra Elf, and which now that I heard that your father did a cartoon about um, a, a superhero, I'm wondering if that was an influence. So tell us a little bit about that whole body of work. Well, Electra Elf happened... Um, with Nick Zed, mostly it came out of writing the stage plays I'd been writing, and I'd done quite a few of them. Oh, yeah, Faceboy was seeing this girl, Alexa, and she was friends with John Ennis, who later became one of my best friends, and he needed to borrow an elf costume. At the time, I was working as an elf at Bloomingdale's, and he contacted me or something, Ed said, I heard you have an elf costume. I have this cable access show. So I go and meet him, give him the elf costume. He says, do you want to be in this show? So his TV show, his cable access show, was called Tools of the New School. And it was just this really high-quality, hilarious show. It was a little bit like Jackass before Jackass existed, except that it often had a political political content to it, or it was part of it would be scripted. It it was a really great show. And then in 2000, I had been in a trauma movie, Terra Firmer, and I met Nick Zed on the set, and, you know, we were two people so weird that it was inevitable that we got together. I didn't know he was a filmmaker at the time. I didn't know that much about transgressive cinema. But, you know... Right, because he had been active since the 80s. Yeah. Doing a lot of stuff with a lot of the punk people. Yeah, but we had a lot of similar taste in, in camp stuff. Like superhero movies. and Or not not the superhero movies of today. But, you know, like 60s Batman and, and things like Dark Shadows or stuff that... Uh, super weird. And anyway, I pitched him 
my script for Lord of the Cockrings, which had been a grindhouse play that I wrote. So we made that into a movie, and then we thought, what are we going to do next? And I wanted to do a cable access show and a superhero TV show starring me and my chihuahua. Sadly, she passed away two years ago from Rep cancer. Jen Jr. Yeah. yeah, she was an old girl. She lived a good, long life. And she was... She was just a born actress. That dog loved being on camera more than any dog that has ever lived. <laughs> she was better than Lassie. But she, um, so she and I played little superheroes. And so I worked really hard on that. And through the all the performances and the plays and the TV shows, that kind of thing, there's a whole like body of work of stories I wrote kind of about the things that had happened came about. And then I started to get published based on the... What was your first book? Uh, Reverend Jen's Really Cool Neighborhood. Yes, I remember that. Yeah. And that was published by Printed Matter because while I was doing all this other stuff, my visual art had started to taking the turn that I was doing handmade books and selling them at Printed Matter. And they were real heavily collected. Like I'd done one book that was a memoir, even though I was what, not even 30 yet, called Sex Symbol for the Insane. And it was... Uh, bound in cardboard duct tape fake fur and hot glue with little gems on the side and it had like a half naked picture of me on the front but it sold like crazy so they picked me up published me and then from there I got more publishing so no your career as a writer pretty much took off in the very early 2000s I remember you had a, a monthly column at the now defunct shout magazine yes yeah, I wrote for them for like four or five years and then from there I started writing for Nerve. They yes. picked me up to do the sex column, which then became the book Live New Delph. Right, I remember it was called I Did It for Science. Yeah, so that was two and a half years of my life, and that is great. I mean, you, it's really fun. Does Nerve even exist anymore? I don't know. You know? Yeah. And These um, things, they come and they go. From Nerve, I started writing for Artnet, because I went to Artnet every day to see what the goings-on in the art world were. And when I lost the job at Nerve... Um, I was like, what do I know about? Now I know a lot about sex. Thanks, Nerve. Um, and I know about art. So I pitched a column to them because I saw that they had a lot of stuff from critics and collectors, but nothing from the perspective of an artist. So Diary of an Art Star was born. I did the Elf Girl, which Simon yes. & Schuster put out. And that was like a straight-up memoir, like funny stories about the TV shows. and That's the one that um, when you came out with Elf Girl, we were doing readings together. Yeah, we did. Because that was right around the time. Rachel. That, mm -hmm, that was yeah. right around the time when Fish Out of Agua came out. And then I forgot the other book that makes it six is this book that I uh, published in like 2004 called Trolls Best Friends for Life, which I happened to be at a party at Sarah Fish's and some dude comes up to me and he's like, oh, Reverend Jen, you're that girl that collects troll dolls. We need someone at Scholastic to write a book about trolls for kids. And I'm like, all right, yeah. Well, that's a natural segue into <laughs> one of your other greatest creations, which was the Troll Museum, yeah. which was basically your entire apartment on, on Orchard Street. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what made you start collecting trolls? What made you decide to open up a troll museum in your apartment? And how you actually made it become an actual New York City attraction where strangers came to see the <laughs> troll museum? I was, uh, I started collecting trolls. I think I was about 11 years old. And I just liked the way they looked. 
once people know that you collect something, they give it to you. Like if you go, I collect trolls, people will just start throwing trolls at you. So by the time I was in my 20s, I had like a million troll dolls. And then I started noticing that the Tenement Museum existed down the street from me. And I thought, huh, that's so funny, you know that people go in to look at a tenement, like basically exactly like the one where I live. And then I think, what if I put all of my trolls on the shelves in my apartment and not only invited people in to look at a really old tenement, but one full of troll dolls. And that's how the troll museum starts. So before I even had a chance to really think it through, like, is this a good idea? I sent out press releases to the media announcing the opening of the world-famous Troll Museum. But I did put by appointment only and all this stuff. And, like, please do not list address. Everyone listed my address. So it was like a mob scene all of a sudden. It got listed my address. And the museum listed on the front page of MSNBC and shit. I it was like total chaos. And I, I unleashed a monster, but it also became so fun, especially for people who were staying over or visiting, because you never knew when people might show up and want to tour. I mean, Bruce Ron was watching JJ while I was on tour in England, and he emailed me. He's like, a bunch of college girls just showed up for a tour. And he said, I know enough about trolls that I was able to give them a tour. Anyone who lived there for any um, amount of time knew how to give a tour of the troll So museum. they all became docents. Yeah, pretty much. Roommates. <laughs> you know. Well, one of the things that I remember is just hanging out in your apartment on some random Saturday. <laughs> and the doorbell rings. And it was these Italian tourists. Yeah. Like, like, I remember wait, wait, that. Wait, and they were all wearing like these pastel colors and the men had the <laughs> sweater tied around their shoulders with their polos and the totally. women had the scarves and they were very tan, like they just came I, from Almalfi or something. I remember. So tell us a little bit about what happened to the Troll Museum and where it is and how it exists now. Um, okay, so the Troll Museum, things were... It seemed like the Troll Museum was slightly cursed, let's just say, from the get-go. And things got pretty bad there. I think, I feel like the steam pipe explosion was the beginning of the end. It was uh, February 2010. I walk in and uh, it was about 125 degrees in there. My paintings were all snapped in half, bent in half. I thought Reverend Jen Jr. was dead. I couldn't see in front of me because it was uh, wall-to-wall steam. And I thought there's no way this little being can could have survived because I'd been at work for four hours. And so... A neighbor came running up to help me, and it, it destroyed half of my belongings, at least half of them. Like, first thing I did was look for Reverend Jen Jr. She saved herself by hiding behind the cold porcelain of the toilet, because had she been anywhere else, she would have been dead. I bounced back. Like, I worked extra hours. I took side jobs. I got a new computer, blah, blah, blah. I re-stretched, like, ten paintings, and you know what a pain in the ass that is. But when I found out, I was seeing an engineer at the time, when I found out, he looked at the boiler room and said, oh, look, they let yours rot. That's why yours is the only apartment that exploded. It just became an out-out war with my landlord. And cut to a few years later, three years of housing court. And it was so stressful. And, of course, I was going out with Joe, and, and he was living with me and splitting the rent with me. He got brain cancer, and it was, like, the worst thing I've ever gone through at the time. It, it, hopefully ever, you know, and 
I lost my job at the Tenement Museum in 2013, along with a lot of other people, and that was always my steady source of income. Like, freelance is so hard, especially in this economy. And I just, I couldn't take it anymore, and I couldn't. I could have tried every, I did try every trick up my book, and there was no way I was going to come up with the money I owed them. And then that was real nice. They just, I still had like three weeks to try to come up with money, and they just knocked down my door while I was in the shower and threw me out. So within a space of three years, you lost your job, you lost your apartment, and then you lost your partner. Yeah. How does one bounce back from that? Um, it wasn't easy. I was like, well, you have two choices. You don't or you do. They have a saying on the Lower East Side, it can only get worse. It can only get worse. <laughs> I just remember that, and I'm like, or things could always be worse, so... But things are on the upswing for you right now. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm, like, happy or anything outrageous like that. But, but I, I think that you've turned a corner. I think that um, you've gotten to a place now where you can see ahead of you. Yeah, well, that's why I'm painting a lot right yeah. now. Because painting, to me, is like, like writing takes total awareness, you know. And painting is you can use your subconscious a lot. It's yeah. like this freedom thing. So just painting a lot and, like, painting myself out of a hole which is what I've done every time I'm depressed. And the great thing about paintings is sometimes they sell. Yes, and that's, oh, that's always a good thing. Yeah. But one thing I do know, Rev, is that you have not only created so much art in so many different disciplines, you have also overcome personal, professional, and health challenges that would have floored a lesser individual. So what do you foresee as the next chapter for Rev Jen? Uh, I've never had a trajectory. Like, I actually have never gone, I'm going to go out and do this, and then gotten it done. It always surprises me. I go out maybe in a vague attempt to get something done, and then something new surprises me. Right now, I'm trying to paint more ambitiously than I ever have, like painting more than I ever have, uh, burning through paintbrushes and canvas and... Uh, I don't and, I don't know why that is. It might be some escapism, but the potential right now for having a show is pretty pretty grand. Honestly, I'd love to do a kind of retrospective of my paintings and and really organize it, but maybe not at a at any kind of art place. Maybe you know, somewhere. I'll tell you if I win Powerball, <laughs> then I will buy a little house uh in Sheepshead Bay. There's a pink house that I have my eye on there, but it's a psychiatrist's office, so I don't know if they'd sell it to me, but that somehow makes it even more attractive. <laughs> yeah, right? You know, but I have to say, Rev, I actually find it comforting to know that some of the wacky weirdness of New York City and art and art stores still survives because you're still in it. Oh, thanks. Same to you. Oh. I mean, uh, when I hosted the Mr. Lower East Side pageant, seeing that there were new, there was new blood, new art stars, new weird people. But then seeing you and Jen and and the other Jen, <laughs> like all the Jens, and and actually just uh, old school art stars mingling with new people at a new venue. I love that place, Bedlam. It's it just good. it just abides. It's just like it's like a train, and the train continues. And maybe some cars get unhitched from the, from the train and go in other directions, and other cars get added onto the train, and other cars just remain. But it just the as Tolkien would say, the road goes ever on and on. Yeah. Absolutely. Oh my god, that's so freaky dicky. Yeah. <laughs> Shout out to Courtney Weber for that one. Not nah, nah, nah. So 
if people want to find out more about you, Rev. Jen Miller, and your art and your fabulousness, who want to contact you about a commission or buying one of your pieces or maybe turning one of your many writings into something we can all enjoy, where can they find you? I generally only use Facebook. I'm not on Instagram or whatever. If you send me a message on Facebook and say you listen to this, or because I have a page that's all of my paintings on there, I don't really have a public page. Uh, I just have my page and made the painting page public so anyone can view it. And that's probably the best way. There's some good articles about me online, you know, that you can find. Do you have a current website? No, I don't. This is pretty hilarious. I sold RevGen.com to the new RevGen.com, which is Revenue Generator. They're a business site that helps people make money, but they paid a nice amount for RevGen.com. Oh, well, you But can... I think it's hilarious. I'm going to start, hopefully, another website. You can soon. do, like, the real RevGen or RevGen again or something yeah, like that. Or RevGen.tv or something. Yeah, or RevGen.paint. But, yeah, maybe uh, restructure that first website. It was hilarious, the one wow. that Tom designed. Tom Teniel has helped make really wacky websites, and that one we did everything handwritten and marker. So funny looking. <laughs> so, Rev, I asked this of everyone when we come to the end of our time together. If you had a word or two or three of advice and or encouragement for a fellow weirdo, a fellow would-be art store, or someone who has creativity locked in them no matter what the mm-hmm. discipline is, but through the constraints of their environment or their upbringing or their own fears, they don't know how to get it out in the world, but they know they must. Mm-hmm. What would you tell this person? The best advice I ever got came from Shakespeare to thine own self be true. And that means that if you write something and you look at it from a critical perspective, looking at your own work and you think, is this the best thing that I could write? And the answer is yes. Don't feel afraid to put it out there in the world. If you believe in what you make, do not be afraid to put it out there in the world. I've been rejected so many times that my skin is so thick. Uh, You will face rejection. Not everyone will get you. Also, remember what my father said that art is hard. It's never going to be easy. You're going to stumble and fall and get back up, get back up again. And that's cliche, but it's true because everybody goes through bad times. Everybody has writer's block or painter's block. The one thing that every successful artist has in common, the ones that we study in art school or that we look at in museums, they had a group of people that they worked with. Things that are great do not happen inside of a vacuum. You're going to need people to encourage you. If you feel totally alone, there's nothing scarier or worse than that. There are a lot of people who also feel totally alone who want to be creative. I learned that from being an open mic host. You know, lots of people who felt like they didn't have anywhere to go found each other and created a community. And if you don't find that community, you can create one. People will come to to you. Just don't be afraid. That's the, the fear is the, is the enemy of art. So basically know that if it was easy, everyone would do it and find your fellow weirdos. Yep. You can't do it alone. Thank you so much, Rev Jen, Ooh, for being on Fish Out of Agua. I love you. This has been so fun. I love you too. Hug on the air. We always end with a hug on the air. And we're back. 
with Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. 100 episodes, and I've never ended an interview with applause before, but this one, I just had to. We did have to leave out Rev. Jen's story that she had prepared because, honestly, her whole interview was her story. But we can offer it as a gift in the future, and that's what we're going to do. But right now, kids, that's our show. You have been listening to Fish Out of Agua on Radio Free Brooklyn. Visit our website, www.radiofreebrooklyn.org, to find out more about all the fabulous programs that we do. Donate, listen, share, because this is what Brooklyn sounds like. And we're going to close with whatever we can get in of the last of Reverend Jen's song picks from Led Zeppelin, Ramble On, from Led Zeppelin 2, back in 1969. I told you this was going to be a 60s episode. Okay, kids, stay tuned for Brooklyn Bandstand next, and we'll see you next week with episode 101. Now it's time for me to go. The 